The First Amendment to the Constitution provides, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. The purpose of the amendment is to stimulate a marketplace of ideas, where the truth or acceptance of ideas depends on competition and not government censorship. For that reason, the amendment prohibits the government from restricting expression based on the message, subject matter, or content of the speech. Free speech can sometimes lead to the protection of controversial, inane, or distasteful ideas. As the Supreme Court explained in Cohen v. California, quote, we cannot lose sight of the fact that, in what otherwise might seem a trifling and annoying instance of individual distasteful abuse of a privilege, these fundamental societal values are truly implicated. That is why wholly neutral futilities come under the protection of free speech, as fully as do Kate's poems or Don's sermons. However, the First Amendment has its limits. In Chaplinsky v. New Hampshire, the Supreme Court held that certain categories of speech lack protection because they serve, quote, no essential part of any exposition of ideas and are such slight social value as a step to the truth that the benefits of such speech are clearly outweighed by the societal interest in order and morality. Categories of speech that fall within the area of permissible regulation include obscenity, defamation, fighting words, and true threats. The question of how far the government can go in regulating these categories of speech comes up frequently in constitutional litigation, particularly in criminal law. In recent years, many states have enacted anti-stalking statutes, featuring both criminal and civil methods of protecting stalking victims from threats of violence and abuse. As Justice Alito recognized in Alanis versus the United States, quote, threats of violence and intimidation are among the most favored weapons of domestic abusers, and the rise of social media has only made those tactics more commonplace. But when the conduct at issue is speech alone, which is not uncommon in the social media age, does the government have to prove the defendant intended to place the victim in fear, or will an objective test suffice? From 2014 to 2016, Billy Counterman sent hundreds of Facebook messages to C.W., a Colorado musician and performer. The two had never met, and C.W. never responded to the messages. Some of the messages were nonsensical, like, I have too many flaws to be perfect, but I have too many blessings to be ungrateful. Some were delusional, like, I'm going to the store, would you like anything? And some veered into arguably threatening language like, staying in cyber life is going to kill you. CW feared for her safety as a result of these messages, and Colorado prosecutors brought charges against Counterman under the anti-stalking statute. Counterman was convicted after a trial and appealed the verdict contending that his comments were not true threats and that his conviction violated the First Amendment because the state could not prove that he intended to cause fear to CW. The Colorado Court of Appeals affirmed the Supreme Court of the United States granted certiorari. This case pits society's interest in protecting free speech rights versus the interest in protecting victims from abuse. This is Counterman versus Colorado.
Welcome to Legal Judgments, where we tackle litigation and trial strategy by analyzing and talking about real legal cases. I'm Bob Stetson, a Boston-based trial lawyer at Burnkoff. Today we're discussing a case that strikes at the heart of liberty as enshrined in the Constitution, the criminalization of certain forms of speech. With me to discuss the case is John Elwood, the Director of Appellate and Supreme Court Practice at international powerhouse law firm Arnold & Porter. John has argued nearly a dozen cases before the Supreme Court and countless others before every federal appeals court in the country. John also clerked for Justice Anthony Kennedy while he was on the Supreme Court. It's an honor to have you here, John. Thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start with the decision itself. You prevailed. You convinced the Supreme Court to vacate the conviction. In a 7-2 decision authored by Justice Kagan, the court held that Colorado was required to prove, as a matter of constitutional law, that Counterman possessed some subjective intent of the threatening nature of his speech. In that regard, the court established a recklessness standard, explaining that such a standard, while perhaps lower than other forms of intent like willfulness or knowledge, strikes the right constitutional balance by giving some, quote, breathing space for legitimate constitutional concerns without sacrificing the benefits of enforcing public safety laws. In other words, without making it too difficult on prosecutors to prove these types of cases. Now, this sort of struck me as a pragmatic decision, or at least the reasoning was sort of pragmatic. And we're so used to seeing, at least in recent years, the Supreme Court survey the historical backdrop of an issue before laying down a constitutional principle. And we don't really see that here. Your brief, I thought, did a really a masterful job of explaining how the historical evidence pointed to a constitutionally justifiable intent requirement, you know, perhaps even one more stringent than recklessness. But uh, the, the court seemed to gloss over that point. And so the first question to you, John, is why do you think the court opted for a more pragmatic approach here. I noticed in your brief, for instance, that uh, most free speech cases sort of came up in the 20th century. There was the Alien Sedition Acts in the late 1790s, but not really anything else until the Espionage Act around World War I. Is that why we see more pragma pragmatism in this decision, or was there something else at play? You know, I really wondered about this because it struck me as a very old-fashioned decision because it seemed like an opinion that Justice Brennan would have written. It seemed like kind of a Warren Court or Burger Court opinion. It, it didn't have any of the originalism of sort of the Roberts Court or that we would see today. And it certainly didn't seem to follow, you know, the, the way our, our side briefed it. You know, we opened with originalism and framed it all in terms of originalism. And I really, puz I was puzzled by the way that the opinion was written. And, you know, at first I thought maybe this is an effort by Justice Kagan, you know, who's one of the justices in the more liberal block, to try to press back against their originalist tide and breathe a little bit more life into, among other things, you know, the, the sort of Sullivan versus New York Times standard. But, you know, what I think it finally was is that, candidly, the standard that they wound up adopting, recklessness, which I think struck them as the correct standard pragmatically, that it just wasn't supported by the evidence in originalism. 
The two big cases which we cited, State versus Benedict, an 1819 Vermont Supreme Court opinion, and Regina versus Hill, an 1851 decision uh, of an English court, you know, just really weren't very consistent with a recklessness standard. They really looked to the what the um, defendant knew was whether the defendant knew that a statement would be viewed as a threat or whether it was even their purpose, which is a higher standard still. And I think the bottom line is that the the result that they struck them as a right standard just wasn't supported by the originalist evidence. And so they did more of a old-fashioned kind of balancing analysis instead. I want to talk about the real-world implications of this recklessness standard. You know, an oral argument there was a fair amount of discussion about civil protection orders in this realm and, you know, how whatever the court decided here, in addition to impacting criminal threats and anti-stalking statutes on the criminal side, it was also going to impact litigation over civil statutes, anti-harassment orders, etc. Now, in Massachusetts, at least, you see a lot of harassment prevention orders sought really in instances of bad breakups, you know, some relationship gone wrong. And then there's a mountain of evidence because it's text messages or direct messages on some app on your phone. And it's a mountain of evidence showing this bitter and hostile language. And that's kind of the case here with Counterman, at least in terms of the volume of communications that were available as evidence. And Kagan made the observation during an oral argument, I, I think to the Solicitor General, if the court were to adopt this recklessness standard that they ultimately adopted, how could you not convict countermen? Just look at all of these messages. And given the volume there, and in a lot of these cases, just given the social media age, I, I think she has a point. So now that we have this recklessness standard, you know, it's a conscious disregard of a known risk. In the age of social media, aren't we still at risk of criminalizing communications that probably in any other time period might be chalked up to hurt feelings or bad choices? Or I guess the other way to ask this is, where's the line between true threats, which are not protected by the First Amendment, and less than ideal speech, perhaps, between immature adults? So it, it, this is, is kind of a funny thing because, as you know, I argued the Alonis case back in 2014. And at the time of Alonis, I, you know, we, we mooted this idea of recklessness. And I remember at the time thinking, oh, well, recklessness is just, you know, that's not nearly enough. And I, I really would have been disappointed by a recklessness standard. And over the intervening eight years, there's gotten, there, there's become, uh, I think as a society, we're, we're so much more, uh, less free speech oriented and so much more interested in regulation of speech, maybe because of the rise of social media, that I, one of my major challenges was not to seem too enthusiastic about the court adopting a recklessness standard, you know, you know, because in moot courts, I was like, you know, I, I thought recklessness was just fine. And in order to, you know, make it seem like it was a compromise, I tried to make it sound like I was less enthusiastic about recklessness as a standard. You know, I think, you know, I'm not really, I'm not really a First Amendment guy. I argue First Amendment cases when they come to me. 
And so I, I inherently have kind of the practitioner's view, which is itself a pragmatic one. And I think the one thing that I think is good about this recklessness standard that they adopted is that they emphasize that it is a conscious disregard of a known risk. That is, it isn't just a, an elevated negligence standard. It does require some sort of subjective realization that the things you're saying are going to make people worried, or at least that there's a real risk that the statements that you make are going to worry people. And I think that that is kind of the protective element of it, is it is kind of a, a very enhanced recklessness standard, I think. And, you know, as far as whether this is the right line, I mean, the one thing I will say is that at least this, the type of recklessness standard they adopted does have a sense of wrongdoing in that you're consciously disregarding the fact that uh, people are going to be discomfited by what you're saying. And it is a big improvement over what the standard was in many states beforehand, including in Colorado, which was really a negligent standard. So I think it's a big improvement over the negligent standard. Whether it's enough is remains to be seen. You mentioned in your last answer, John, uh, Alonis versus United States. Of course, when I looked into the Counterman case, I saw that you represented Alonis. Um, and this case kind of looked like, Counterman looked like unfinished business in some respects uh, from Alonis. So for the listeners in Alonis, you represented a man charged under a threat statute for writing graphic rap lyrics about his ex-wife, sort of, you know, kind of like an Eminem style, you know, talking about killing her and what have you. The Supreme Court held in that case that the prosecution, this was on statutory grounds, not constitutional grounds, but the court held that the prosecution was required to prove some level of intent, you know, whether it's willfulness, knowledge, recklessness, they didn't say, but, um, but they, they did say something more than negligence was required. Now you ultimately got them to answer that question, uh, eight years later in counterman, but you know, I, I did see that counterman originally, or, or perhaps even on appeal was represented also by the Colorado public defender's office. And I'm assuming if he was represented by the public defender's office, that he cannot afford Arnold and Porter's legal fees. Um, so I guess my question is, how did you get involved in this case? And the follow-on would be, you know, why? I'm sure you get inquiries like this all the time, given your experience at the Supreme Court. How did you land on this case? I'm going to give an even longer answer than you asked for, because I'm going to talk about how I got the Alonis case, because I definitely got this case because I got the Alonis case. At the time we represented Alonis, I was with the University of Virginia Supreme Court Clinic, their, their law school Supreme Court Clinic. And one of my students in the clinic spotted this case decided by the Third Circuit and said, hey, this is the subject of a circuit split. It seems like it'd be a good candidate for a cert petition. And I called up his court of appeals lawyers and I offered to take the case on a pro bono basis, you know, no fee basis. And uh, he said, you know, it's good that you called when you did, because I literally was getting ready to call Stephanos Vivas of the University of Pennsylvania Supreme Court Clinic. And so I, you know, Vivas went on, of course, to be a Third Circuit judge himself, but literally like a five minute difference made, you know, a five minute, because I was the early bird by a five minute interval, you know, I wound up arguing that case when otherwise it would have been Judge Vivas. 
And uh, I'm confident because I got counterman. I'm confident because I had argued the Alonis case. The lawyer at the Colorado Court of Appeals level reached out to me and said, would you be willing to take this case for us? And I emailed the associates in my group and I said, does anybody want to do this petition with me? Because, you know, at this point, since I'm now kind of the leader of the group, in order to not just do only pro bono, I essentially do pro bono when an associate wants to do it. And one of the associates did want to do it. And so we agreed to take it. And I really had no particular, I, I didn't think that the odds of the court granting this case were very high. It, it was from an intermediate state court. The court overwhelmingly, the Supreme Court overwhelmingly takes cases from the federal courts of appeals. It takes many fewer cases from the state Supreme Courts. It takes virtually no cases from state intermediate courts. And so I thought the odds weren't very good, but, and indeed I had seen other lawyers including lawyers at my firm, try again and again to try to get this issue granted. And the court just hadn't taken it. And I didn't think that this was going to be the case, but we filed the petition. It wound up looking a lot more promising than I expected it to, because I thought the facts were fairly good and fairly sympathetic. And the court, it went to conference in December. That is the first time they considered whether the grant was December. They relisted it at something like four or five consecutive conferences. And at that point, I thought we were just going to get a, an opinion descending from denial of the case, which had already happened in at least two other cases on this very issue. And then on January 13th, which was basically the last date it could have been granted and argued last term, they took it. Wow. So what did, I think you kind of touched on it here. What did the staffing for this uh, assignment look like? And what did the brief, briefing process look like? You know, how many revisions and drafts of, you know, the petition and then the brief did you guys go through? I mean, this was this, the brief in particular is just so scholarly and polished. I mean, how do you, how do you, can you tell the listeners how you get to a product like that? Well, the original petition was written by me, an associate and a counsel. And when the case was granted, uh, because it was granted so late in the term, it, we knew immediately that it was going to be an expedited briefing schedule. I think we wound up losing 10 days from the, the opening brief that we would normally be entitled to. We'd normally be entitled to, it's a much more drawn out process here. But because of when the court granted the case, we knew that we weren't going to get our full usual amount of briefing time because you have to file the reply brief 10 days before argument. And so in order to, you know, essentially not have to file the reply brief in like seven days or something like that, we wound up filing our opening brief early. And we also followed our reply brief early. We filed our reply brief two weeks earlier than we otherwise would have to in order to meet that 10-day requirement. But the staffing increased, you know, enormously for the merits briefing because we knew that we were on an expedited timetable. And so we wound up having, I think, a total of five associates, one counsel and me working on the brief. And everything was, you know, farmed out. We had I think two lawyers just working on the originalist research because we were really wanted to boil the ocean. Given how originalist the Supreme Court is, we really did boil the ocean looking at all sorts of treatises. We looked at, you know, just tons of English cases. We looked at a lot of early American cases. We actually, there's a, a whole archive of just the like trials at the old Bailey in England. 
And we, we looked at that. We did not actually send a lawyer over there to do it, but we did have someone search all of the records online that were available. My firm had done a brief in the past where we actually did send a lawyer to the old Bailey to actually research the paper records, but we didn't go quite that far this time. But I, I think we wound up doing something like 30 some drafts of that opening brief. So it was an enormous amount of work that went into it. You know, each of the lawyers had their own section that they wrote. And then I and the lead associate and the lead counsel, you know, massaged it all together. And I think it, one other kind of interesting factoid is the counsel who works on this with me writes fiction in his spare time. And he's a published author of thrillers under a pseudonym in his spare time. And I hope I haven't given too much away there. Well, that's incredible. It's nice to have someone that, uh, you know, has such dexterity uh, with writing on, on your team. That's, that's unbelievable. Right. It, it definitely makes the, the writing much more punchy when he works on it. I think it's, he's really outstanding in that regard. I mean, it was really an impressive brief. It was such a, uh, just a joy to read through, you know, kind of on the same topic of, of preparation here, how did you prepare for the oral argument? Now I'm, I'm quite certain that you mooted the case. Um, but even beyond that, what, what was your process? You know, how, do you come up with themes? Do you come up with bullet points that you want to get across to the, to the court? Are you, you know, kind of gearing your answers to certain blocks of justices, you know, what did, what did that process look like? Well, my process always involves note cards, lots and lots of note cards. It, it's partly a way of calming my nerves, but I write down whenever a question occurs to me, I write it down on a three by five card and I keep a stack of them. And usually by the time argument rolls around, I start out with like a two inch stack of note cards. And you just think about answering how to answer that question. And after I've done that for a while, I start noticing, you know, themes that I think are particularly strong or ways of framing the issues. You start out just answering the questions and then eventually through that process, and by the way, answering them out loud so that you get kind of muscle memory of finding particular words and saying them and making sure they sound persuasive when said out loud. And then I start developing themes. And the end result is I try to have essentially what people in the Solicitor General's office, the office that argues in front of the Supreme Court for the government, usually call a spiel, which is the points that you affirmatively want to make. And, and then I have a, a Q&A in a binder of the questions that I think are going to be, I'm going to be asked the most. There usually aren't that many of those, 10 or 15 of the most, most likely questions. And then I have my giant stack of note cards which I try to winnow down in the last weekend before argument, I try to winnow down to the 10 or 15 questions that really matter because it's really only 10 or 15 questions that are going to change the outcome of the case or could potentially change the outcome of the case. And the rest of the questions, it doesn't really matter if you flub them. And you just kind of wood you know, woodshed the 10 or 15 questions that could change the outcome of the case and make sure that you deliver them flawlessly. What do you bring up to the podium with you? I bring up a binder. I rarely look at it, but I have my spiel. I have Q&A and I have citations to both the record and to the to to important cases. I rarely look at it, but it's kind of a it's kind of a comfort blanket essentially. Security blanket. 
Nowadays, we get most of our court decisions and orders through email, but I know personally, whenever one comes into my inbox, even before I know what the decision is, my, my body starts to react, you know, the, the nerves, uh, you know, my hand get a little shaky, maybe my hands start to sweat. I can only imagine what it's like to, you know, see a, a Supreme Court decision come through your inbox. Uh, can you take the listeners to that moment for you on, on this case? Sure. It's funny, you know, like when you have a case, you're watching for it on every hand down day. And it was June 27th. And I was actually supposed to be delivering a Supreme Court update at a, at a client of mine that day. And I was in Penn Station waiting for my train to New Jersey to the client's offices. And I was having trouble getting a signal on my phone. And so I was walking all over the train station and I just could not get a signal, could not get a signal. And finally, I got a signal literally as I was about to board the train. And I just kept refreshing on my phone and it came across. And I scrolled down into just the, the syllabus, which is the summary that's on top of the opinion. And I saw essentially just the bottom line. And then I, I forwarded the email to all the clients on the team or all the lawyers on the team. And then I, I boarded the train and essentially I only read the syllabus. Uh, uh, I only read the syllabus that day because, you know, this is not a particular interesting case to a client. You know, they're much more interested in, you know, certain business cases and cases that are of interest to them. So literally that day, all I read was the syllabus to see that we had won. I, you know, kind of briefly patted myself on the back for that. And then I started boning up for the client presentation. Last topic, and it's completely separate and apart from this case, but I know you blog it at SCOTUS blog, and at least at one time you contributed to the Vol Conspiracy blog, uh, you know, two of the most influential legal blogs in the country and, and certainly two of my personal favorites. How did you get involved in, in blogging, John, and how much time do you devote to it now? I was asked by Eugene Volick. I had known Eugene Volick quite a while because I had sort of a proto-blog before there even were blogs. I had a email distribution list of something called the Supreme Court Today, which was kind of a humorous Supreme Court update. And I did this before I had children, and it was an enormous amount of work. But it got to be a very, very big listserv that included some pretty prominent people, including Professor Larry Tribe and Judge Stephen Williams of the D.C. Circuit and a few other people like that. But it was kind of like a pre-blog. And Eugene Volokh was an early subscriber. And when I left the government, he said, hey, how would you like to join the Volokh conspiracy? And so I did. I was kind of an intermittent blogger, but I would blog on things of interest to me, including relisted cases. That is, when the Supreme Court considers cases before granting at consecutive conferences, I knew from clerking on the Supreme Court that that meant that they were taking a especially close look at them. And you might be getting uh, either a grant out of them eventually or a dissent from denial, but somebody cared enough that they were bringing that case back again and again and again. And in 2014, the Supreme Court started routinely relisting cases before granting so they could basically kick the tires, make sure there weren't vehicle problems that would uh, prevent them from actually resolving that issue. And sometime between 2009 and 2012, I moved the, the topic that I blogged about mostly, which is relists, Supreme Court relists, from the Volek conspiracy to SCOTUS blog because it was more of a specialized audience that would really only interest people who were especially interested in the Supreme Court. And so I went from blogging for Volek on, you know, various subjects of interest. 
you know, like presidential signing statements, you know, just cases that interested me. And then some relists to blogging just about relists at SCOTUS blog, which is a very, very specialized topic. And at first it was truly only for this pointy headed Supreme Court nerds. And in fact, there was a time when Merrick Garland, when he was on the DC circuit, came up to me at an inner court and said, Hey, I, I read your, your realist watch pause. I decided I didn't care that much about the Supreme Court, which is kind of a funny burn. But eventually when they started routinely relisting cases before granting them, it became much more widely read because it was essentially a preview of what the grants might be. And then, you know, like every reporter started reading my realist watch so that they could, you know, essentially pre-write what cases might be granted. So in any event, it's a, a long answer to a short question. It's, it's kind of a labor of love at this point because it takes a lot of time. And I, to, to quote Tommy Goldstein, the guy who started SCOTUS blog, he said, I've never gotten a client because of the blog. And I also have never gotten a client because of the blog, but it is, it is kind of a fun, fun exercise and very different from my normal duties. Well, listen, John, thank you so much for your time today and, and best of luck on your future Supreme Court oral arguments. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. That's our show. Check out the show notes for more information on today's case. Also, if you were involved in an interesting civil case or know about one that you think would be a good topic for the show, reach out to me at rstetson at bernkofflegal.com. That's rstetson at b-e-r-n-k-o-p-f legal.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a positive review. Follow us on Instagram at Legal Judgments on Twitter at legal underscore judgments and on LinkedIn at legal judgments podcast. And don't forget that E in judgments. <laughs>